You are listening to 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is a broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Television is self-defeating. It's a multiplier for the industry. It increases the price, but doesn't decrease demand. The drug war began with the process of colonisation. The current measures are based on fear. Psychedelia on this uh, Sunday afternoon, or if you're listening via podcast or watching the video at whatever time it happens to be. Uh, my name is Nick, and thank you very much to Freedom of Species on every Sunday, uh, right before us, 1 pm till 2 pm on 3CR. If you want to find out anything more about Freedom of Species, 3cr.org.au is the place to go. Um, you can find their podcast, you can find their social media, you can find their website, and lots more information about them. Um, we, oh my gosh, COVID round two. COVID round two, hooray! Um, feel like it's a bit, um, I don't know, slightly nuttier this time around. Uh, joining me across uh, from the Zoom panel as we record our show in isolation, Ash, how are you going? Yeah, um, okay. Yep, COVID <laughs> round two. It's definitely uh, more intense. The sequel is uh, certainly more dramatic than the first time around. Um, uh, lots going on. Lots of people suffering um, and stressing out. I'm glad to be walking again. So for regular listeners, um, you'd know that I broke my right foot right before we went into lockdown round one. Um, and I'm kind of back on my feet again. So I'm, I'm glad of that at least. Yeah, that um, just adds a double whammy to it. My um, my partner's um, mother just broke her foot in a not too dissimilar way to your foot, uh, Ash, and that's just um, you know caused extra troubles for, for for them. I think that's the thing about uh, the moment. Um, those small things that you'd normally be able to uh, you know get on with life because there'd be other things that can distract you or you can um, uh, you know focus your energies elsewhere. You, you can't do that at the moment. It's um, it, it is all-encompassing um, and we've found it difficult um, apologies uh, there have been some weeks where we have uh, missed shows entirely and um, I apologize for that that's um, that's just our uh, well my, my uh, poor planning that's trying to get better but my gosh it is hard to keep up uh, the weeks just disappear uh, disappear as well I've found that time is really uh, uh, condensed at the moment um, and, and you know suddenly Monday is Friday and is Sunday is Monday again <laughs> yeah it's it's uh, definitely strange experience. Feels like January was about twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe it's nearly August. But um, you know, we, we continue on and we continue uh, with the show. And we're, we're we've been working on. Well, I've been working a lot of uh, on a lot of video and visual elements uh, since a lot of people uh, have their eyes on their devices at the moment. I thought it would be a, a good idea to learn uh, that territory. Um, so we will uh, and have been producing more content that you can find on YouTube. Uh, also been working with uh, organisations like the Yarra Drug and Health Forum, uh, AOD Media Watch, uh, which is at aodmediawatch.com.au and Yarra Drug Health Forum is ydhf.org.au uh, to help uh, produce some of their video content for, uh, you know, keeping that, that local discussion on drugs and drug policy going, especially uh, when we are in such interesting times and one of the, um, uh, you know, one of the difficulties is, is getting good information at the moment, um, which is why, you know, over the past few months, we've been catching up with people like Dr. Monica Barrett, uh, Dr. Stephen Bright, uh, about things like the uh, uh, 2019 National uh, Drug Strategy Household Survey, which uh, the results for that just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we caught up with uh, Dr. Stephen Bright uh, to talk briefly about that. So things have been moving on. We've started to see that uh, festivals, some of the festivals uh, that would be on over summer have started to pull the plug because they're concerned... Uh, the, the risk is too high that they might not be able to uh, run the festival. So several festivals have already uh, postponed. They don't want to put their resources into something that just might not happen. So we might not even have a real festival season this year, um, which is a, a bizarre sort of thing. But people have been innovating, I suppose. Um, uh, I don't know, Ash, have you um, caught any innovations? Or I, I mean, it's been hard. I've been just locked I've in. I've been aware of some. I, I haven't. I haven't 
I haven't caught that many, but uh, I have been aware of some, um, you know, happenings, uh, cooped up cabaret, you know, I've got a, quite a few performer friends and people that organize them. They've been putting on shows um, that you can sort of pay a small fee and, and watch performers in their lounge rooms coming to you in your lounge room. So that's been one kind of nice one. Um, yeah, a few DJs kind of streaming sets. Um, that's That's been nice. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really expect that we would have a festival season this summer. Um, just knowing how these things are organized, like the work usually starts months out from the event. You've got promotional teams, you know, starting the work, booking DJs, you know, booking performers. There's a lot of work that happens year round to put a festival on. And there's, you know, there's always, uh, there's a fair bit of risk in putting them on as well. It costs mm. a lot of money to do all of that work before the event. And, um, you know, even if you've got insurance, you're unlikely to see all of that back. So I, I fully expected that we wouldn't really have a festival season this year. But it doesn't mean that people uh, stop uh, taking drugs. <laughs> we know that we know that people don't need festivals to take drugs, despite what some politicians would have you think. Uh, and I've just seen an article that I've uh, only just started reading in the conversation uh, from Dr. Nicole Lee and Dr. M- uh, Monica Barrett uh, on drive-in music festivals uh, allow you to, that, which allow you to. Uh, physically distance, but what happens when you add drugs and alcohol? So apparently, I haven't even heard of this yet. But apparently, there's a, an emerging trend. I've, of... I've read this article. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so what? Uh, give us a lowdown. So <laughs> um, they just looked at the 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 challenges for harm reduction and kind of safely managing the different aspects of how that might work. So you know, people would usually. Um, at the very least, consume alcohol at, at live music events. That's common for probably most people. But if you're driving, then that clearly doesn't mesh up well. Like even if you wanted to have a couple of drinks, there's a risk for managing exactly how much you have. It's likely that there would be drug and alcohol buses on the exit of that event, as there is with a lot of music festivals. But then you get the, the harm reduction side of it. So services like DanceWise... How do they then operate? How do they, how do, how do, if somebody's having a problem and they're in their car, how do you do outreach? How do you take people in to um, look after them if they do have problems? You know, and how, how might that change the ways that different people consume substances? Like, presumably, if you're the driver, then you're going to be sober. And if not, then how do you manage transport? Like, do you take your car there and then leave it there? find another way home um, in the era of COVID that has a whole other range of risks. Well, yeah, but you know, like if you're cramming people onto a bus, that, yeah. that, that's, that would ordinarily be a safer way to operate. But with a pandemic, particularly here in Victoria, while we've got so many active cases, that doesn't seem like it's a, you know, possibility right now. Um, so yeah, they just kind of tease out like how, how that might work in the different circumstances and, and look at some of the, the challenges that it presents in, in you know, in that context. I got to say the uh, idea doesn't um, appeal to me very much. I think I'd find it more appealing if, uh, uh, if you could uh, stream music and then uh, everybody just goes camping to their own camping spot with, uh, you know, half a dozen friends or family, close friends or family. Uh, and then you can all join in on the festival on the, on the web stream from the forest. We just need a uh, 4g in the forest. No, wait, <laughs> uh, no, but, but you know, I, I think there are other ways to um, uh, to to approach these things um, than using the car. I just wouldn't want to have a car with me. It's, uh, even at festivals, I feel like it's too much responsibility. And you know, with our unclear uh, drug driving laws, um, which are still you know being ramped up uh, all the time, more money being thrown at them. The rhetoric is still the same, despite the fact that these tests don't test for impairment. They're not about impairment, um, but that. Um, 
doesn't seem to matter at the moment. By the way, there's still a petition available at the Victorian Parliament website. Um, we'll put a link on our social media and whatnot. So, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of things to watch. But today, um, before we, uh, you know, uh, ramble all the time out, uh, we want to jump into hearing a couple of voices from a recent Students for Sensible Drug Policy webinar uh, that was held for Support Don't Punish Day, which was the 26th of June. Uh, there were three speakers at this event. Um, um, there was uh, Mary Harrod from uh, NUA, uh, New South Wales Users and uh, AIDS Association. Uh, there's Tara Schultz, who's a uh, commentator and uh, person with lived experience, and also Dr. Peter Malins from RMIT, uh, talking with um, the SSDP webinar audience. This is only a small snippet of it. If you want to find the rest, uh, SSDP Australia will be uploading it to their YouTube soon, and we'll share a link there. This is in Psychedelia. You're listening to 3CR. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. With radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe, and be kind to each other. To help stop the spread of viruses like flu and coronavirus, good hygiene is essential. That starts with washing your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds whenever you cough, sneeze, or blow your nose. Prepare food or eat. Care for someone sick, touch your face, or use the toilet. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. It's important for us to acknowledge, especially before we begin, that whilst this webinar takes place virtually, we're currently situated on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri, Boon and Boon people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal people of Eora as well as all the countries that our audiences and members are situated upon. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to any First Nations people who are present with us today. With acknowledgement must come action. How is it that we can support the self-determination of First Nations people today and stand in solidarity with them against acts of colonization which have been continually resisted for the past 200 years. Today is International Support Don't Punish Day, which is an international day of protest to counter the United Nations Office of Drug and Crimes International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking. It's organized by the International Drug Policy Consortium. And tonight we're also partnering with Paradigma, which is broadly an international coalition of various harm reduction youth policy orgs around the world. Um, today widely calls for an approach to substance use, um, which isn't punitive or one that causes more harm and instead supports people regardless of their decision to use or cease use of drugs. Together tonight, we've brought three speakers who will speak to the intersections of all of these things. Opening this evening, we have uh, Mary Harrod, who is the CEO of NUA, the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association who will broadly introduce us to Australia's National Drug Strategy Scheme and create the context and container for this evening's conversation. 
She has an extensive history of working in the individual and family services industry and is skilled in strategic planning, public health, public speaking, program development, and public policy. Followed by her, we'll have Dr. Peter Malins, who is a senior lecturer at RMIT in criminology and justice studies. The main focus of their work is in exploring the intersections of drug use, health, and law, and how we can think of and critically about the impacts of drug interventions. They'll be sharing some research this evening with us surrounding the impacts of sniffer dogs, and it'll be a pleasure to have their insight. And then lastly, Tara Schultz will be closing tonight with us. Um, and she'll be exploring the issue of class mobility in the context of recovery within the alcohol and other drug um, systems for people who use drugs and have co-occurring social, mental, and other issues. Their lens is primarily the class-based persecution of, of individuals um, through police and the framing of the deviant, the outsider, and the other. She is a passionate advocate, writer, and speaker, and is a consultant on all things broadly from gender to alcohol and other drugs and mental health and speaks quite poignantly to um, lived experience at the center of all of those things. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, just as background about Nua um, to start with, because it's really relevant in this context. Um, we're a drug user organization in New South Wales and it, we were founded in 1989 uh, during the HIV pandemic and uh, have worked very closely with New South Wales Health and have been funded by them for the past 30 years. Um, and we have been put into a number of policy areas in New South Wales, including um, uh, a lot on, in music festival policy, um, uh, hepatitis C and alcohol and other drug policy, which uh, tends to be focused on of the opioid treatment program. Um, next slide. Uh, so as Argos said, um, the national policy is one of harm minimization. So the national drug strategy uh, is a 10-year strategy and it started in 2017 and harm minimization is demand reduction so that's um, delaying the onset of drug use uh, treatment um, and uh, those are kind of the main education and treatment uh, are the main parts of demand reduction. Supply reduction, and I'm going to read this one, preventing, stopping, disrupting, or otherwise reducing the production and supply of illegal drugs and controlling, managing, or regulating the availability of legal drugs. Um, so just, I just think it's really worthwhile reflecting on this um, supply reduction. So the production and supply of illegal drugs. Um, so harm reduction is the third pillar of the national drug strategy, which is reducing the adverse social and economic consequences of the use of drugs for the user, their families and the wider community. And, and it's not a bad, um, uh, you know, the three pillars of harm minimization are conceptually uh, pretty sound. And I, I think that the thing that is missing from the three pillars of harm minimization is targeting individual drug users and penalizing and criminalizing individual drug users. And that's the way our policy is carried out in Australia. And it, it's just very interesting for me to reflect that it's not actually part of our, our national drug strategy. Um, next slide. So our, our national um, drug strategy is in contrast to uh, what our de facto drug policy is, um, particularly in New South Wales, which uh, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of the issues we have in New South Wales with sniffer dogs and the music festivals that have um, become like you know, it's quite typical to see 50 police when you're entering a larger music festival. 
Um, and what I mean by harm maximization is our, our policy implementation. I mean, we do do the other three uh, pillars. So there is treatment, there's education, there's um, there's harm reduction, but the proportion of the way those things are implemented is very out of kilter with the the vast majority of funding going into uh, enforcement. And it's not enforcement of supply reduction, it's actually enforcement of penalizing individuals that use drugs. Um, harm, harm reduction, which is what NUA as an agency does, uh, gets about 2% of the national drug budget. And treatment, I think, gets about, um, at, at the most, 20%. Um, and, you know, we know that we have about half the number of treatment places um, that we need. So, yes, pill testing at festivals is, is part of harm reduction. That's like a harm reduction strategy. So other harm reduction strategies, which are incredibly well evidence-based, um, are the opioid treatment program is a harm reduction strategy. Uh, that's been called the most successful public health program in New South Wales by a, uh, when it was analyzed. Um, needle and syringe programs are part of harm reduction. Um, peer support is another part of harm reduction. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's assuming that people do and will use drugs and uh, is uh, supporting them to be their healthiest selves and their choices. Um, but unfortunately, what we actually have in Australia is um, this statistic it is, uh, that's on the screen. Uh, so 77,000 people, over 77,000 people were arrested uh, for drug-related offenses, with the majority being possessed and or use of illicit drugs. So 52,000, over 52,000 people were charged with possession or use of illicit drugs in 2018-2019. And, and it's just important to remember how much harm is caused by each one of those charges. Um, and that's only sort of the tip of the iceberg of the harm that's caused by the way we enforce uh, or the, the, you know, the way we don't actually adhere to our national drug strategy. and have this alternate strategy based on stigma and criminalization and of course the the UN um, ODC um, the 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 you know the agreements that were formulated back in the 60s so 52,000 people charged in in one year across the country um, and each of those charges has the you know significant um, uh, potential, if not like, you know, to, to basically ruin someone's life. Um, can we go to the next slide? So a lot of, a lot of why there's this, um, uh, schism between what our policy actually is and the way that we actually implement drug policy in this country is, uh, criminalization of drug use. Uh, which goes back to the single UN Convention on Narcotic Drugs in 1961, and uh, which calls drug addiction an evil. Um, and as uh, uh, has been pointed out, um, you know, genocide isn't referred to an evil in the UN conventions. It's it's like a, a special category reduced to uh, for reserved for drug use. Um, so that's kind of a, a very large part of, of why we're in the situation where people that are doing nothing but, you know, choosing to use one substance versus another are, are you know, subjected to all kinds of criminal penalties and stigma. Um, you know, some of the other issues that we have that are, are really system-wide issues is um, a lack of leadership at the policy level, at the government level. Um, there's a lot of people, good people working in policy settings that, uh, you know, are, are very aware of the issues, um, but are the politicians that we elect uh, have very little, you know, there's exceptions of course, um, but the people that are in office, this is not an issue that gets very many people many vo votes. Um, 
you know, service delivery and research are underfunded, as I mentioned before, and uh, conservative political leaders, which is both sides, you know, labor and liberal, have little understanding or sympathy for illicit drug use. And and I guess the comparison with HIV policy is, is very apt. Um, so, and the reason I brought that up in the beginning is we actually lead the world in the elimination of HIV, uh, Australia does, and, and New South Wales does in particular, uh, because that policy is, is, is implemented hand in hand with community. That's one of the really um, strengths of it, but also it, including the community of people who use drugs, but also it's, it's, it's evidence-based. So there's a lot of data, there's a lot of research, and we, the policy decisions are based solely and wholly on evidence. So we have world-leading programs like um, PrEP, uh, you know, that has essentially, um, we're very close to eliminating HIV in Australia. Um, next slide. Uh, yeah, so I'm from New South Wales. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that our issues have been laid bare for the whole country. It's hard to know what people in other jurisdictions are reading about and hearing about. Um, but we actually don't have an alcohol and other drug strategy in New South Wales. So the New South Wales um, has a draft drug strategy that's been sitting around for a couple of years now, um, but it, it's not being implemented precisely because it has uh, the three pillars in it. And the government uh, is implementing a very, very different drug policy in New South Wales. So, um, you know, effectively, the New South Wales drug strategy is based on on the three pillars of harm minimization, um, you know, and uh, it was completed at least two years ago. And it's been sitting on the desk of, um, look, I don't really know whose desk it's sitting on, but, um, you know, the obvious reason is is that it's an evidence-based policy with a very strong harm reduction focus, and that's not the policy that the government wants to implement. What this leads us to is a, a situation where there's uh, human rights violations, um, you know, are quite frequent. Um, and these are two examples in New South Wales, strip searches. So close, over 5,000 people were strip searched in 2018, um, and uh, it, the, it, I imagine that that figure is even higher. PETA can probably talk about that. 91% uh, of these strip searches were done for drug possession. As many people would know, they're being done illegally. Um, they're targeting young people aged 25 and younger. Uh, some people under eight, the age of 18 are being searched, and there is a, a higher proportion of Aboriginal people that are being searched uh, than would warrant it by uh, the, the percentage of people in the population. Um, so New South Wales Police, this is another example um, from that was recently in The Guardian. Uh, so 80% of people caught with cannabis are pursued through the, court, through the courts, and that's disproportionate uh, to non-Indigenous people being put through the court that have been caught for using cannabis. Um, so we have a cannabis cautioning system in New South Wales uh, where you don't need to pursue th people through the court. There is another option available to police and 80% of indigenous people, which, you know, I, I think other speakers are gonna touch on this, but 25% of the prison population in New South Wales is indigenous people, which is an, a just outrageous. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please... Donate today. Call 9231-3365 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter. 
we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6 p.m. Tuesdays. You're listening to 3CR. So, hi, everybody. Um, as Argo mentioned, my name is Peter Malins. Um, I'm a senior lecturer at RMIT University in Criminology and Justice Studies, um, and I use she or they pronouns. Um, so I just thought, um, I think Argo, or Argo gave a little bit of an introduction um, about my work. Um, as well as teaching in criminology, I've also been doing research on a range of things, mainly around policing of drugs and a bit on drug education, and particularly over the last few years looking at the use of drug detection dogs in Australia. Um, I've also worked before at a needle and syringe program, and I have also yeah, um, worked in local government doing production um, and drug policy type work. Um, so I wanted to give, I think it's a bit of background noise. Do you want Oh, sorry. Thank you. So I just wanted to give a little bit of an overview about what I'll talk about today. Um, and that is that I mainly want to talk about two key things. One is that I want to say that we need to shift away from um, that focus, as Mira was saying, on um, using police and prisons um, to regulate drugs um, because like largely because drug criminalization is a key mechanism of um, racial um, oppression and other and oppression of other marginalized groups um, and then the second part of my talk I'll be looking more specifically about how policing also operates um, to increase drug related health harms and that's where I'll be looking more specifically at my drug detection dog work um, I just want to say when I refer to drugs I'm generally referring to them in a very broad sense um, so including alcohol um, and also other things like nicotine, pharmaceuticals, caffeine, sugar, mainly because I see that anything taken into the body that alters bodily perception um, or mood can really be understood as a drug. So I'm not just talking about illicit drugs or the ones that often people are thinking about. Um, I like to broaden that out. Um, I also just want to uh, um, acknowledge, as Argo did, um, that I live and work on the unceded lands of the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung or Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Um, and I want to pay my respect to their elders, um, past, um, present and emerging, um, and to um, all of the Aboriginal custodians of um, this land and the unceded land and waters of all of Australia um, and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us here tonight is about drug reg regulation in context. So maybe I'll just start talking about it anyway. Um, so... I want to start by saying that um, the criminalization of drug use needs to be understood in the context of um, the fact that it's, it's always been much more about the criminalization and control of certain groups than it has been about protecting health. You know, we often think that drugs that have been chosen to be made illicit um, have that's happened because of health reasons. Um, that's not actually the case. So the history of drug control is very much a history um, of social control and particularly racialized social control. So if we look at even just both the US and Australia, um, the prohibition of drugs such as cannabis and opium have both been tied to and rationalised through um, a range of racist fears, particularly racist fears around sexual promiscuity between white women and racialised others. And this stuff's quite well documented. <clears throat> um, most notably, though, I want to draw attention to the fact that in the 1960s in the US, President Nixon's declaration of a war on drugs was driven not by health concerns, but on the government's desire to control and suppress the anti-war left radicals um, and the growing back black power and black rights movement in the US. Oh, and so ever since Nixon's declaration of drugs, which was driven um, as one of his aides later admitted by these this, this um, desire to control the anti-war 
left and, and the Black Power movement. Since then, um, there's been, of course, an escalation of much harsher penalties and increasing police powers and the pouring of funds into policing and prisons in the US, which led to um, the expansion of what's known as a prison industrial complex, um, which in the US cages nearly 2 million people, um, which amounts to nearly 1% of its population. So if we can imagine that one in every hundred people in the US um, is in a cage and the majority of those people in cages in the US, um, more than two thirds are non-white and people of color. Um, and um, also a large, very, very large proportion of those people in cages are there for drug related offenses. Um, and here, if we um, turn to Australia, um, most of you already know that, of course, Indigenous um, Australians are massively overrepresented in both police and prison custody here in Australia. So the criminal justice system and practices of incarceration, both in the US and here, have been shown um, by many scholars um, um, to be an extension of slavery and of colonial um, practices of genocide. And this is not just because of the forced labour that happens within prisons, but also because um, this criminalisation is really a way for governments to legitimise the disempowering and controlling of people of colour and Indigenous people so that they are less able to fight for their rights. And in Australia, if we put that into the context of um, a very strong mining and resource sector, which has a huge stake in ensuring that Indigenous people don't succeed in land rights campaigns, um, and the fact that these industry and lobby groups really fund government and fund media to ensure that there are laws in place and police resources in place to keep criminalising Indigenous people, um, we can see that there is that colonial extension through drug policy. So drug um, laws and drug policies need to be understood um, in the resourcing of police in relation to drugs, which I'm going to talk a bit more about in a moment, need to be part of, seen as part of this process of criminalisation and oppression. Um, so there were, as many of you might have seen recently, um, because it's become um, much more, there's much more um, public awareness of it ever since the um, George Floyd murder in the US. The Black Lives Matter movement both here and in the US is currently calling attention to the need to urgently defund um, the police and to invest instead in a range of community wellbeing and transformative justice initiatives as alternatives to policing. Divesting um, from policing and prisons as a response to drug issues in society is an important part of this process, especially given how much the drug laws are currently used to justify police resources and time um, and how much they are currently responsible for our incarceration rates. Um, it's important to think about as well that if governments really wanted to address the health concerns associated with drugs, they would actually be listening to the ex expert advice of health professionals and researchers who are all saying we need to urgently decriminalise or legalise and regulate them. Um, and the example of Portugal is a really good one here because, of course, Portugal um, has been really successful over the, um, the time since, uh, I think it's about um, 15 years ago or so more, that they um, legalised and decriminalised nearly all drugs and invested instead heavily in health and education and treatment instead. Um, and the success in Portugal in, in terms of decreased um, drug-related offending, in, in, in decreased problems associated with drugs um, and even decreased drug use it's, um, um, itself in many uh, many aspects of drug use um, has been a huge success. And so, if, yeah, if governments here were really interested in um, actually um, putting in place policies that were about health, um, these things would be taken into account. So currently the criminalisation of drugs gives police reasons to unnecessarily stop and search people um, and this process fills our prisons with people who really um, should not be there if anyone should be there at all. So I want to just say that first and foremost, the reason that we need urgent um, drug um, policy and drug law reform is for reasons of racial and social justice. So understanding that big picture context is really important. Um, and that importance of really shifting away from policing, a reliance on policing and prisons towards um, community welfare, community wellbeing and health types, type types of responses. 
But secondly, and this is what I'm going to turn to now, there's also, of course, um, and this is not unrelated to that first point, um, we need to shift away from policing of drugs because it also causes on the ground a, a range of um, completely unnecessary health harms and health risks for people who are using drugs. Um, and research has really been showing for decades that um, policing of drugs interferes with harm reduction practices um, and results in increased risk of infection, violence and overdose. Um, and my research, which I'll talk about now, looking at police use of drug detection dogs or sniffer dogs, um, really provides an example of how some of those harms are being produced on the ground. Yeah, my research has really been looking at the impacts of um, police use of drug detection dogs around Australia, and I've um, interviewed a bunch of people about their experiences. The first concerning thing is to note that police around Australia have been increasingly using sniffer dogs um, to search for illicit drugs on people in um, public places, such as music festivals, events, um, bars and clubs and pubs, um, on train stations, particularly in Sydney, but also in Melbourne and other places, um, and even in and around and on city streets. Um, they've been increasing and expanding the use of drug, drug dogs despite evidence for a long time showing um, some of the harms and problems and inefficiencies of, of um, this technology. The first thing perhaps to note is that um, research has shown that the dogs are not very effective at leading police to drugs. So positive dog identifications where the dog you know, sits down because it identifies that somebody um, is carrying drugs actually only result in police locating drugs about a quarter of the time, um, so between 70 and 80 percent um, of the time, the person is not found to be carrying drugs. Um, and even when um, police do find drugs on the person, it's nearly always only small personal use amounts um, that are being found. So the police and the police drug detection dog programs are not um, at all searching for or finding high-level um, dealers. It's not an effective way to do that. The second thing to note is that the drug detection dogs, um, and my research backs up early research showing this, um, they're having little to no deterrent effect on levels of drug use, um, but are instead resulting in a range of really dangerous um, changes to the way that people use and carry their drugs. So for example, um, and this came out in my interview research as well, um, in response to the presence of drug detection dogs, uh, people are instead choosing to um, stash drugs internally, so in vaginal or anal cavities, um, which can increase health risks. They're choosing to wait and buy drugs inside events and festivals, um, which um, is generally more dangerous than buying from a known supplier. Um, they're choosing to shift sometimes to less detectable but sometimes more dangerous drugs or ones that they have less experience with. Um, and perhaps most concerningly, um, people are um, talking about preloading their drugs, um, taking all of or more of their drugs before arriving um, so they don't have to carry them through past the dog, dogs or, um, and this is the most dangerous of all, panicking um, when they see the dogs um, and taking all or a lot more than they would usually take of their drugs at once. Um, and in Australia, at least three overdose fatalities have already been um, linked by coroners to this kind of panicked ingestion. So we can see the ways in which a policing strategy which to many people would seem like a very self-evident um, or common sense kind of way to try to reduce drug problems um, and especially around recreational drug use is actually not serving any sort of um, good purpose but in fact is causing a whole range of harms. Um, the other thing to note, um, and this came out in my research, which was actually really trying to look beyond just those harms to other kinds of harms as well, um, found that, of course, the um, use of drug detection dogs results in a lot of trauma for people. Um, so, of course, fear and anxiety um, and stress at the time, but also lasting trauma. And it's really well um, documented that searches um, and particularly strip searches that go along with drug detection dog use are inherently degrading, humiliating, violent um, and dehumanising. And the use of these kinds of searches can cause deep, deep and lasting trauma. Um, and this is particularly so for survivors of past violence um, and abuse um, who can experience those um, strip searches as a form of um, 
um, sexual abuse in many cases. Um, and one of my interview participants talked at length about the impact that that had had on her um, and the, the triggering and re-traumatising impacts. Um, so, yeah, they can cause a lot of health um, risks to be taken. Um, so encouraging more harmful practices, they result in trauma. And then finally, I just want to mention as well that what my research also found is that um, the use the, the drug detection dogs are not the neutral objective tools that um, they're often purported to be. So as any of you um, who has a dog would, would probably be aware, um, dogs have evolved over a long period of time with humans to be able to read very, very subtle human cues. Um, so sniffer dogs are no different to this. Um, so sniffer dogs respond to even unintentional cues from their handlers. And there was one um, scientific study um, that found that um, the sniffer dogs were significantly more likely to um, identify locations where their handlers wrongly believed drugs to be hidden. So where the handlers had been told there were drugs, um, but there were no, in fact, no drugs in those locations. Um, so it is the case that um, any biases that a handler, a police handler of the dog will have, whether that's conscious or unconscious, um, is going to affect um, the dog searches and identifications. Um, and this actually might explain some of the false positive, false positives that haven't been able to be explained so far by the police. Um, police um, have also been found to be disproportionately deploying the dogs in areas um, with um, high marginalised um, community populations, so Indigenous and working class populations especially. And an example of this is the suburb of Redfern in Sydney, where despite these areas having lower success rates for police finding drugs through the use of dogs, um, the dogs are being deployed there disproportionately um, more often. Um, and there's a great campaign up in New South Wales, up in Sydney called Sniff Off, which has been doing some great work documenting all of these issues. Um, and as Mary showed before, um, there is that study as well showing that when police do find drugs, um, they're much, much more likely to um, make Indigenous people um, go through the courts. And uh, I think that that article talked about the police were four times more likely to give a caution, um, so to not involve um, criminal charges and going through the court, four times more likely to give a caution to a non-Indigenous person than an Indigenous person. So based on all of this, it's not hard to see that the use of sniffer dogs as a policing strategy is disproportionately impacting marginalised and racialised communities. So it's one of the many, many ways that policing practices and the policing of drugs fits into that broader picture um, around that kind of um, use of um, the prison industrial complex and, um, and policing to really work to um, be a tool of oppression and racial oppression particularly. Um, so I just want to conclude by saying that Indigenous people and people of colour in this country already experience disproportionate levels of surveillance, policing, criminalisation, incarceration, um, etc. Um, and so, um, you know, these practices need to be understood as part of that broader system um, and they need to end now. So we need to urgently invest instead in community care um, and transformative justice type practices um, around primary, primary prevention, health, education and finding other ways to um, address um, drug issues in Australia that don't involve prisons and police. G'day, this is John Safran and you're listening to 3CR, Community Radio, Radical Radio, 855am. So I'm coming uh, in from a lived experience perspective, uh, having grown up um, as one of the many victims of the war on drugs. However, I also went uh, into university to study um, this area and doing research um, within... I'll let you know about the research I'm doing uh, toward the end. But just to give you a background on my story and my experience of the war on drugs, particularly when it comes to marginalisation uh, and class uh, control um, and, I guess, punishment for being poor... Um, it really starts with my father, who he was the sole custody, sole carer of me and my brother. And from the age of 
three or four years old, police raids were a part of our of our life. Waking up in the middle of the night to flashing lights, our uh, door being beaten down or broken down, hearing my father being beaten up in the next room. These were common um, facets of our lives. They were normal for us. And Dad was put in jail a few times, which meant that depending on where we lived, in the beginning we lived in our hometown and our grandparents would take us. But our dad became estranged from his family and the constant police raids meant that we had to move. Now we were on the run uh, all over Australia from the police who targeted my father constantly. You may be wondering what exactly it my father did to warrant such um, heinous abuse. I mean, we, I recall one time, um, I've got a photo here just to give you a little bit of a conception. I should put it in the slide. That's me and my dad. You know, he's a small kind of hippie, long-haired anarchist kind of dude. A very kind-natured, very um, humid, you know, pacifist kind of guy. Very political. Um, but one time we were, I was on his shoulders and we were walking to kindergarten and the police uh, started driving up slowly behind us, lurking, you know, as though they were some kind of predator. And my dad would say to me, like, don't look, Taurus, don't look at them, you know, don't look. And I was four, so I was growing up to learn that the police, who are representatives of the state, were evil, monstrous people who I needed to be fearful of. And on that particular day, they did grab my dad. They didn't have a warrant. They just tried to force him in the divvy van with me clutching his leg, crying and screaming. Uh, and it was all because they wanted to charge him with trafficking cannabis. And I'm not sure exactly how grabbing him off the street when he was walking his little kid to kindergarten would do that. Um, he was only ever charged throughout his lifetime um, of possessing cannabis um, because he never really had that much in his house. You know, he might have sold the occasional gram to make sure that the cost of his cannabis use didn't impact us so much because he struggled with employment uh, due to his own depression and mental health issues. So when I was little... I learned that we were not a part of the same society that everyone else is a part of. I learned that we didn't exist in the same world that everyone else existed in. We were not allowed to call the police. We did not have access to the same institutions that everyone else um, is able to access normally. And I can't help but wonder, and this goes back to kind of what um, Peter was saying and what's been happening in the world at the moment in talking about defunding the police, because if we'd taken the money that the police had spent constantly harassing my dad, I think that he maybe got like two charges for possession of cannabis uh, in his lifetime. He was never charged with trafficking um, drugs or anything like that. He was charged with um, stealing some wood. We had moved into a new town yet again and we had no electricity it was a fireplace and dad had gone up the road at middle of the night it was freezing and taken uh, some wood from somebody's yard and he was charged with that and that charge actually meant that he couldn't get a job um, 20 years later as a taxi driver or 15 years later as a taxi driver uh just you know the war on drugs doesn't even just include these charges for cannabis. They, they just harass you. They'll harass him for a taillight being out. They'll harass him. They'll put a canary. They'll just make his life hell. They they weren't. It wasn't really like they were concerned that oh, the evil cannabis is coming into this community. So I just want to point out that when it comes to class and the war on drugs, the lower classes and the marginalised classes are the people who rely most on social support for mobility. So that means in order to get ahead in life, in order to gain status or to gain higher income, you have to uh, be able to, I guess, recover from a variety of different things. Uh, my mother had severe schizophrenia, as I said, my dad was struggling. You know, you need all these different social supports. And these are all kind of left wing ideals of community there are ways in which the state would uh, redirect funding um, and they're not doing that they're just tearing communities apart so those that are born into poverty have very little help so we did not belong my family and I we were the uh, druggos and the deros um, we were the bludgers um, the junkies and the ferals this language pervades our society today 
this language is used constantly. Um, you know, we are a drug addict and junkie. It's a way to label somebody as at fault for their own circumstances and their own adversity. It's a way to take the focus off uh, shared social uh, responsibility and place it um, at this stigmatised feet of those who choose to be deviant. And, of course, then all of their problems are their own. Uh, So all of the lower class, all of the Indigenous communities, um, they're all at fault for being uh, these druggos and these these dull bludgers. To know that my story is actually quite common, it makes me feel less like a lone freak. So this uh, article in The Age when I was 26, this is when I first met Kat and this is when I realised that my story was not uncommon. It was actually incredibly common, particularly for young girls in my demographic who were grown up with uh, with no community, were just exposed to trauma um, and abuse and neglect. And after uh, this, when I learned that I wasn't alone, Again, what does it mean to be this healthy, productive, valid member of society uh, without any... And what does recovery mean? Like, it seems like a really... It, it seems quite meaningless to me. And I, I'm really quite interested in, in how um, my thesis is aimed at um, how recovery is conceptualised within government um, and programs because I want to understand what do they think recovery is and where it comes from um, and how is dependency... Um, and recovery being uh, conceptualised and implemented within service provision um, over recent decades and how we can use social theories of modernity, structuration um, and class ca- uh, social capital that I discussed before to better understand the dynamics of class um, and class mobility in the context of recovery because really it comes down to um, changing of status um, changing because that's what's happened for me. Like I've had marginal status change, um, which has given me more power in many ways. Um, and you know, it's worth noting that the war on drugs really kind of intersects with the undeserving and deserving poor debates that we see. You know, and you see that kind of um, played out, like within um, you know cashless welfare cards. Um, so I just want to end on my last slide i've probably gone over time i'm not sure where i'm at so from the story that i did in my 20s this is where i'm at now so now i challenge those narratives as much as i can and i I really try and take that language like i'm a bludger i'm a darrow i'm a junkie um i'm an you know i'm an addict i'm the doll i just try to fight that narrative because in the end i think that recovery is political this idea of recovery and the war on drugs and intersection with drug treatment services is really important um, because a lot of the time there's a lot of infant i can never say the word infantilization within treatment services where you're treated like naughty kids and you're treated like you don't really know better and you you're obviously making such bad decisions in your life that you need to be strip searched and you need to be like told uh, to go for a walk and what time you need to get up because you you can't um you can't fend for yourself so recovery is inherently political because you're reframing the context of who you are and your identity and how you fit into community um and i don't know if i mentioned it but the man that i took to court he went to prison for 10 years so there's a just a happy note to end on um so i did get justice in my life which was crazy for me to have somebody recognize my human rights um because the war on drugs yeah as i said is really just a war on people and it's really just um reinforcing the lack of responsibility by the state. So sorry if I went over time and that's that's it for me. In Psychedelia on 3CR and you have been hearing from a uh, SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia webinar that was recorded uh, for Support Don't Punish uh, Support Don't Punish Day on June 26th. Uh, Support Don't Punish calls for a, a rethinking of our drug policies away from measures that aim to punish and toward measures that aim to support those who are struggling with a addiction problem. Um, the speakers there were 
were uh, Dr. Um, Mary Herod, uh, Mary Herod from Newham, New South Wales Users and Aids Association, Dr. Peter Malins from RMIT University, and Tara Schultz, political commentator and a uh, person with lived experience to help uh, tell that side of the story. This has been In Psychedelia, and uh, Queering Near is up next. This is In Psychedelia. For more information, visit InPsychedelia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. In Psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. Produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.